Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. In the summer of 1993, I was visiting New York City. I was 28 years old and had played chess casually most of my life, but I had never played a rated game or been a member of U.S. Chess. My father had been a member when I was 14, and so I did have some knowledge of Chess Life magazine. That summer day, I walked into Coliseum Books at 57th Street and Broadway, a popular bookstore that is now sadly long gone. On one of the front tables I saw, for the first time, the 1988 book Searching for Bobby Fischer, which had just been re-released because the movie version was shortly to come out. With no hyperbole, I can say that I had one of those life-changing moments. I grabbed the book, smitten by nothing more than the title. I began reading hungrily and didn't stop until I was many chapters in. It fascinated me in a way that only a few other books have, but it is the only one that directly affected my life's path. Chess suddenly became a much bigger part of my life. I saw the movie version of Searching on the day it was released in August. By October, I had played my first rated game during a work trip to Cincinnati. I was living in Savannah, Georgia at the time and joined the newly formed Savannah Chess Club and created the club's newsletter. This led to taking over the Georgia Chess Association's newsletter, which led directly to my being hired as director of publications by U.S. Chess in 2005, with my prime job duty being editor of Chess Life. And now here I am almost 17 years later, interviewing Fred Waitskin, the author of Searching for Bobby Fischer, along with his wife, Bonnie, for this July edition of my One Move at a Time podcast. Further, as editor of Chess Life, I had commissioned an article by Josh Waitskin, and I've become good friends with Bruce Pandolfini, who figured so prominently in the book and movie after having spent many years editing his Chess Life column. The book remains relevant more than three decades since its release. Last month, former Chess Life columnist Grandmaster Daniel Naroditsky was named as the New York Times' new chess columnist. In his very first column, he included a puzzle from a game by Josh against Ed Fremkin, writing, Today's puzzle features Josh Waitskin, an international master and the protagonist of the 1993 film Searching for Bobby Fischer. Josh Waitskin is often overlooked, and today's puzzle, in which he defeats a national master for the first time, is one of many scintillating wins in his long chess career. After Naroditsky wrote that, this made me think it is high time that this Daniel interview Fred and Bonnie Waitskin and examine with them, these many years later, with Josh no longer actively participating in the chess world, what did it all mean? It's my privilege to introduce Fred and Bonnie Waitskin. Bonnie and Fred have been married for 58 years. Bonnie originally learned to play chess watching the Fisher-Spassky match on PBS, hosted by Shelby Lyman. Bonnie writes, 
For years after 1972, the chessboard and pieces became lost behind the books in our crowded New York City apartment. When my firstborn, Josh, discovered chess in Washington Square Park, I rediscovered my love for the game. Fred and I fought over who would take him to the park, to lessons, to tournaments. Usually, Fred won. Meanwhile, at the request of my daughter Katja's kindergarten teacher, I started teaching chess at PS3, eventually organizing and teaching an after-school program. I took a team from PS3 to the Nationals where they won the Bughouse Tournament and placed third in elementary. I began organizing chess programs in many New York and New Jersey schools and seriously transforming chess players into chess teachers, which became a major trust in my own chess life. Bonnie continues, perhaps my most exciting chess accomplishment, aside from Josh's meteoric rise, was the program I organized at Princeton Day School, where my students won the nationals many times, both individually and as a team. I encouraged schools to offer chess in the curriculum in K-3 through so that students could discover their intelligence over the board, where language is not an obstacle. When I introduced chess to a first-grade class, and when students got it, as they usually did, I would get goosebumps. Perhaps my emotional investment in making chess players of little students was an echo of the excitement of Josh's early passion for the game. Now, pushing 80, as my doctor recently reminded me, I still do problems online every day and play games with my children and their friends. Fred Waitskin started his writing career writing feature journalism, personal essays, and reviews for numerous magazines, including Esquire, Forbes, the New York Times Sunday Magazine, the New York Times Book Review, New York Magazine, Outside Magazine, and Sports Illustrated. His books include Searching for Bobby Fischer, published in 1988, Mortal Games in 1993, the 2000 edition of The Last Marlin, a memoir that was selected by the New York Times as a best book of the year, his first novel in 2013, The Dream Merchant, and his second novel, Deep Water Blues, published in 2019. In addition to Josh, the Waitskins have a daughter, Katya, and two grandsons, Jack and Charlie. Joining us today for the first time as my co-host is Melinda Matthews, our publications editor at U.S. Chess, a former editor of Chess Life Herself, current editor of Chess Life Kids. She also happens to be close friends with the Waitskins and is a chess parent herself. Due to scheduling difficulties, Fred and Bonnie spoke to us at different times, and Bonnie will be part of our discussion later. First up is Fred, and Fred, welcome to the One Move at a Time podcast. Thanks for having me. And thank you for sitting through that extraordinary long introduction. It was a lovely introduction. Beautiful. Well, thank you. So the first thing I'd like to just find out is when did the idea that Josh's story could be a book first pop into your brain? Well, it, it, it was an accident, to tell you the truth. I, 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 had, I, I had written a couple of stories about chess um, in Washington Square Park and in the city for New York Magazine. And one of the editors at Random House read my stories. His name was Joe Fox. Really, actually one of the great American editors. He was Ralph Ellison's editor. And he loved chess. And he read this piece. And um, he invited me up to his office. We sat and we talked about chess for, I don't know, a half hour or 45 minutes. And then he, he said to me, but why are you interested in chess? And I said, well, I've got this kid. You know, he's uh, seven years old or he's going to be seven soon. And he loves chess. And I think he's really good at it. I mean, it's... He's just, he's just a kid, and he hardly knows how to play. But he can already beat me, and he's just been playing a couple of months. And Joe listened, and he said, you know, um, this is your book, not, not writing about chess in the park. This is the book you should write. I can tell you have passion for it. That's how the idea became. 
reality. Now, did you realize at that time that Josh was a genuine prodigy or did you just think he's good at it? No, I had no idea. I mean, oh, you know, maybe I would have had, maybe I would have had dreams about that because, because, um, you know, he'd go to the park and sometimes beat an adult and, and, you know, you, you can fall into the fantasy, but I had no idea that he was a, a prodigy. And, um, and just to continue with the Joe Fox story a little bit, um, they offered me a contract and I was kind of taken away. I mean, taken aback because again, Fox is a, le- a legend in the literary world. And I started to think, what have you done, Waits? Can you, you're, you've taken this advance from Random House to write your first book based upon your kid who's been playing chess for less than six months. And what if he gives up chess after three months? What are you going to say in the book? <laughs> so it was, it was, it was a challenge and very spooky. That's how it started. Now, you certainly were an accomplished writer at that point, but you had never written a book. Were you, uh, you, you must have been pleasantly surprised by such the positive reviews it garnered. You know, it's a funny thing about a book. Sometimes I, sometimes I coach talented young novelists, um, and, I, and I get asked by kids that are just graduating college, should I be a writer? You know, I'd like to write a book. And, and I've worked with, I work with young writers on books. And there's, a, there's an incredible difference between having the idea that you want to write a book and even being somewhat talented or even very talented as a writer and writing a book. Because writing a book is hard. And there are challenges that you can't begin to understand unless you're doing it. So um, it's true. I'd been writing for a while. I was a short story writer and I wrote magazine articles, but I'd never written a book. So part of the fear of this in addition to the idea of writing a book about my, my young son, I didn't know if he was going to be great at chess or if he was going to continue chess, was whether I was capable of writing a book. So I had to teach myself how to write a book while I was writing the book. That was just my first book. It was only five years after publication that it appears on screen. Um, when, when did the movie industry start coming calling to you? Fairly soon. The book came out, and I got a phone call from Tom Stoppard, the playwright, and he said he felt and asked me if, how I think about a movie. And he said, let me try to promote it. I even like to write the screenplay. And he tried to promote it, tried to raise the money and couldn't do it. And then it, it kind of like fell into, into a quiet abyss for a while. And, um, and then one day um, uh, I, I got a phone, a, f- a phone call from, a, you know, from S- Scott Rudin at Paramount. It was kind of absurd when I think about it now. He, he said, um, I'm driving in a limousine with Francis Ford Coppola. Do you know who that is? I said, yeah, I've, I've heard of Francis Ford Coppola. He said, we were talking about your book. <laughs> and that was three years later. So like, I thought it was sort of a dead issue, question of the movie. But it, it kind of sprang into life at that point. And certainly anyone who enjoys a book, and it's got, you know, it, it must, this must go, you know, 10 times as much for the actual author. You know, we always think that the movie... Is, is lacking something because they have to leave so much out of what was in the book. But in this case, I actually thought it made a whole lot of sense what was left out, like, you know, visiting the Soviet Union and, you know, Soviet chess schools and, and things. It, it, it just wasn't relevant to the focus of the movie. Do you, did you feel that way as well? Or would you have preferred that they gotten everything into, into the movie? No, I mean, I knew, I knew they couldn't get everything into a movie. I mean, you know, I mean, a novel or a, a nonfiction book approaches being a novel is, 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 is one or two steps removed from reality. And a movie is more steps removed from, the, from reality. So I knew that going in. But when the movie came out, I didn't like it. 
and and no one in my family liked it. Josh was very disturbed by it. We all were, but um, but it grew on me over the years. I, I I made my peace with it. I came to terms with the fact that it was a movie based upon my book. It wasn't my book, and I saw I saw the value of it, and I saw the beauty of it. And of course, I'm delighted that it exists. I mean, it's done great things for other books that I've written. Um, and it was a good movie, but I didn't see it at the moment. At the moment, I, I thought, what happened to my book? <laughs> right. And this is a question I'm asking Bonnie as well. It, it, it must be a surreal experience to see someone on screen. In your case, it's Joe Montana, and people are referring to him as Fred Waitskin. It was strange. It was very odd. But Joe is a good guy. You know, I mean, some people in that movie, on a personal level, it was very difficult to deal with. Like Ben Kingsley was, you know, very difficult to approach. I mean, he was very distant. But Joe Montaigne was a real, you know, very approachable person. And he was willing to talk about Woody Allen and, you know, and he was willing to talk about his life and he wanted to know about our lives. I really liked him. Uh, Still, when you see larger than life on the screen, Fred Waitzkin, who isn't Fred Waitzkin, and certainly Bonnie felt this way about seeing Joan Allen on the screen, although she was also quite wonderful in a personal sense. Um, it, it's strange and interesting. So I had not considered this until this very second, but you know, you're, you mentioned Coppola. Uh, you know, Joe, Mon- Joe Montaigne appears in Godfather 3. Is, is there any connection or is that just coincidental that Joe Montaigne and Coppola were both you know, kind of attached to this project? Well, I say kind of, but you know, I think you know what I mean. There were all sorts of rumors about who would play, you know, the, the father lead in that movie. Um, Tom Hanks was one, um, I remember, and he, and he was booked on another film at the time. Um, I'm sure Joe, Joe Montaigne was one of several that, that were up, up front as, as, as possible choices. But, um, and he was great. A great guy. So, you know, 30 years on, you know, you've, you've largely have left the chess world. I, I guess it's safe to say you've entirely left the chess world. What, you know, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Do you, do you miss it? Or was it just a happy phase of your life? Well, all of those things, you know, um, the story um, was interesting in the sense that like when Josh decided to leave the game, I guess he was about 20 years old. And at that point he was a strong international master and he wanted to become a grandmaster. And there were very few closed tournaments in the United States, almost none. And so he had to go to Europe um, to play in tournaments where he could get grandmaster norms. And he, he got homesick. He didn't like it there. You know, he had a yearning to go to school. You know, um, he had a girlfriend. I mean, he, he didn't want to be spending, living his life in Europe. And, and he sort of reached the end of his rope as a chess player. I mean, he... He didn't want to spend the rest of his life as a professional chess player. So he decided to leave the game. It was sort of hard for me, for him to leave the game. He left it more easily than I did. But he came to me at one point and he said, Dad, you know, you've been writing about chess for every magazine in the country. And you've written these two really good books. And this is your moment to leave it and do what you've always wanted to do. Um, If you don't do it, um, you'll be the chess writer. Uh, I guess I'm the chess writer anyway, so it's actually by Fisher. But that's why I left. I mean, I, I, I brooded on that because it was, I was walking away from a lot. But I thought he was right. And so I stopped writing about chess. And, you know, you mentioned the Frumpkin game. Um, my publisher asked me to write a little 
piece about the front of the game, a recollection of it, um, a few days after it appeared in the, in the, in the Times. And, and I think it's the first writing I've done about chess. I mean, I don't know, maybe something will come up and I've forgotten, but I don't know, 20 years or 25 years. I, I haven't written about chess for a long time, but it was fun to do it. Just that little two pages, but I enjoyed doing it. It brought back a nice feeling about how I used to do it, you know, because it was weird. You know, I, it, the way I wrote the piece is quite honest. I didn't understand what was going on in that game. I was a fearful dad thinking that my son was losing, but he was winning. And I often wrote, wrote about chess that way. I mean, when I wrote the Kasparov biography, which was a wild experience because, you know, I knew nothing about high-level chess, grandmaster-level chess. And yet I was writing about it for a lot of people. Um, but um, that was kind of the approach that I chose to use. That it was the only approach that I could use. You know, how to write about a very technical subject using metaphor so that a, a guy that didn't know anything about chess could feel it. How could you read these games of Gary Kasparov's that I described if you weren't a chess player and sort of feel what, what he was doing? And that's, and that's what I did. And that's what I did, you know, retrospectively. And I didn't think about it, but I just did it. This came as, as, as mem muscle memory when I wrote about the little Josh game. I mean, I didn't go understand what was going on, but I felt my own fear and that became part of the game. If that makes sense. No, it, it does. And you actually talked about two things there that I, I have follow-up questions for, but I'm going to tease the listeners with that and say, you know, I, I have some questions about um, how, how the, the book affected the Waitskins as a family. But Fred felt that Bonnie was better suited to answer these questions. So we're going to listen to Bonnie now and give her answers there. So joining us now is Fred Waitskin's wife, Bonnie Waitskin. She's coming to us from Martha's Vineyard, and she's going to answer a couple of questions for us that Fred said felt that she was better suited to answer. And the, the first question I have for you, Bonnie, is did chess, did chess ultimately have the value to Josh that some other endeavor might have had? For example, what if he had devoted similar intensity in his young life to, say, mathematics instead of chess? Do you still think that he would have ended up in the same area that he is now? No, I don't think so because he loved competition and he he had great passion and heart for the fight and he didn't really love playing computers as much as he loved playing people which makes sense and you know he later became a tai chi world champion he became a black belt at jiu-jitsu and those uh, other competitive sports. So I think if he had been a mathematician, he might not have gone that way. However, I have to say to you that most of the mathematicians that I know are also chess players. Right. But so I just kind of drew mathematics out of, out of the air. Uh, you know, what if he had been a competitive travel baseball player? Uh, you know, he could have gotten the competition aspect that, that he so craved just in a different, different pursuit. Right. Well, Josh is very intellectual and very, and most of what he does is studying with intensity and detail and really learning about something before he 
makes decisions. So his decision-making skills are probably his biggest chess asset. So let me ask you, um, based on something you said earlier, if Josh was starting out today with all of the um, chess.com and the internet programs and playing online, do you think he would have had the same interest if it were, if, as I think um, kids are playing less in person and more online, do you think it would have held his interest in the same way? Maybe not. I think that he definitely preferred to have real, com- real competitions against people rather than computers. And I'm wondering if you think that my value question even has any real meaning, or is it simply about recognizing an individual child's talents and interests and putting the opportunities in their path to fully explore? Well, what I discovered as a chess teacher was that many kids who could become very good chess players and even with great benefits to their lives um, never were exposed to chess. So I think that value of chess as an educational tool is huge. And so I never taught in any program unless the school offered um, chess in the curriculum. <clears throat> and I preferred to start in kindergarten. Now, reading your bio, I had no idea how extensive your chess teaching history actually is. W- would your 20-year-old self have been surprised to find out that you had made something of a career of a chess teacher? I never heard of chess. <laughs> I, was completely, I was completely ignorant of chess, and I never played or thought about playing until we started to watch Shelby Lyman on the Fisher-Spassky match and on PBS. I'm, I'm thinking of the types of chess students that are out there in kind of a rubric. You, you have kids with desire, but not necessarily the talent. You have kids with both national championship level talent plus desire, which is probably best describes Josh. Do you have different advice to parents of different types of kids in in this regard um, about their chess life, or do you tailor it to the specific individual child? Well, of course, both. But my experience was that um, chess players' children divide into three basic groups, and you have kids who probably shouldn't start learning chess at a very young age or they find it very difficult because they can't see straight lines and they don't have certain skills which which you need to be able to calculate to see the moves. And about a third of the children that I met were exceptionally good at chess and learned very quickly. They were um, quick learners and got very excited by chess. And a lot of those kids are bored in school because they're um, not challenged. When, When children are bored, they don't say it's too easy or I should be learning faster or they don't know why they're feeling uncomfortable and sometimes they misbehave. So frequently children who are very benefit the most from learning chess are kids who are misbehaving in the classroom, which was also Josh. Oh, really? Uh, Yes. Josh, in the kindergarten and first grade, he was a teacher's nightmare. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the, the, the middle group are kids who can learn to play chess and even to play chess very competently, but they're not as quick-sighted as the other group. So what I like to do when I taught, for example, when I taught at Princeton Day School, which had three grade, three classes in each grade, I like to divide the kids by ability and put all the kids who are need to spend more time on the basics in one class and all the kids who are learning pretty well and all the kids who are learning very fast in classes so that they could work with students of their own ability. That meant that if they were playing each other, they had lots of opponents. If you have 16 kids in a class, you're, you're going to be very sure that each child will have an appropriate opponent. But if you have less than 12 kids in a class, you can't be sure that that will happen. So I think there was a it, classes, chess classes benefited from having a few more students than like between 12 and 16 students was ideal. 16 was ideal. But so how would I teach each? Suppose I had a mixed class. I would offer three levels of work. For example, if I had worksheets, I would have three levels of worksheets. So if I'm teaching, say, pins, I would show the concept. I would give some examples. And then I would give the kids worksheets at different levels. And I would let the players choose their level. There's some players would want to do all three sheets and some players would just want to do the easy sheet. I would let them choose which one they preferred. But I think the most important thing in answer to your questions was that if, if I, I never tried to make chess into a culture of tournaments. I made chess into a culture of dis discovering your own mental uh, capabilities and improving on them so that the reward is not winning the game. The reward of playing well is the excitement of epiphany, of discovering concepts and discovering the power of your own brain. And I think so that I think that chess has an intrinsic reward system for the student. So rather than encouraging winning and losing, I would encourage students to discover how smart they are. And that was very empowering for all students at all levels, especially when they got home and play their parents and they beat them, <laughs> which is what happened with Josh. That kind of triggers another question for me, and I suspect I know how you're going to answer based on how you just framed this, but I'm curious about the amount of time some parents will spend devoting themselves to their children's chess lives. And this question can certainly apply to any pursuit, not just chess, you know, little league parents are out there. But speaking generally, 
Do you think it's good for a family dynamic when parents don't focus on themselves first, of course, assuming all the children's ba- child's basic needs are being met? But shouldn't everything else from a family flow from that rather than putting the child's avocations first? Well, I don't know any young chess players who became really great players whose parents weren't very supportive. I I don't think you can take chess lessons unless your parents arrange them. I don't think a nine-year-old can go to chess tournaments unless the parents take them. And if the parents arrange the lessons and take the players to tournaments, that's a big commitment. So I guess that answers the question. Yes. And I would say that as a, as a former chess parent myself, I guess I still am a chess parent in some ways. Um, it's finding the balance between, I've noticed that one parent tends to take the dominant role in going to tournaments, um, taking, taking, taking their child to lessons and doing those sorts of things. So the other parent can maybe be supportive, but help focus on keeping the rest of the family unit um, healthy and, and, and moving along as well. Is that sort of the case that you had? Well, I love chess and I really wanted to always go. Mm-hmm. But Fred was writing an article and then a book about chess. So he had an excuse to always be the one to go. And I had a, a daughter, a younger child. So I couldn't just disappear every weekend or we probably both would have gone. I suppose I was a, a frustrated chess lover who ended up keeping the family together. And what what is your favorite memory from uh, Josh's chess life? Oh wow. That I have to I have to think that there were so many high points to Joshua's chess life. I mean a favorite memory. And then there was the book being published and then there was the movie coming out. I mean, there's so many layers of Josh's chess life. I have to really think about that. Well, we can we can come back. We let that let that mull. And let's talk about the movie for a second, because I'm I'm curious about the experience of seeing yourself portrayed on the big screen by Joan Allen. To me, that seems like that must be a surreal experience. Well, Joan Allen came and followed me around for a whole week. She went to my chess classes. She. She spent some time studying me. And even though I'm short and dark-haired and Joan Allen is tall and blonde, my friends all thought that she was quite like me in her portrayal. Joan Allen is a person who, if you tell her a story, the emotion of your story comes back to you so powerfully. It's like, she's like a mega horn. You know, she's an amazing actress. And um, I have to say there's some scenes in that movie where she really draws my tears because I always experience the emotion that she portrayed. So it was very interesting. Okay, well, now I have to follow up with, give, give us an example of one of the scenes that drew tears from you. Well, one of the scenes that drew, draws tears from me is when she slams the door I have to tell you about that door because, okay, so one day I'm coming up the stairs with 
bags of groceries and the phone is ringing and someone is saying, I'm downstairs, I'm the set designer for Paramount and I want to look at your apartment. Well, my apartment was a total mess, right? And it's a tenement apartment. Anyway, so they come up. Um, I'd been ambushed. And they come up. And the, the door to the bedroom in my living room, the door in my living room that goes into the bedroom has been painted so many times that it has like drips that are painted over and painted over. You know, it has a certain look. Well, the door that they put that Joan Allen slams when she says that if you, whatever, I'll take him away. If you don't let him play chess in the park, I'll take him away. She, that door, if you look at it, and the camera just stops on it for a second, is exactly like the door in my living room that leads into our bedroom. Now, was that a on-location set or was that a... Uh, a, a okay, a- the interiors were shot in Toronto. And the outdoor scenes were shot in New York, mostly in Washington Square. Okay. That was in Toronto. Tell, tell us what, what chess, you know, looking back over the years, what, what is chess the game overall meant to you and the Waitskin family personally? Well, um, to me personally, I really think that chess helped me become an effective decision maker and problem solver that many of the qualities that children pick up uh, learning chess also were qualities that helped me grow into adulthood, so to speak. And among those qualities are many things that if you look at assessments of math intelligence, for example, flexibility of mind and the ability to drop a bad plan or to change your focus. Um, A lot of those abilities I learned in chess games. For example, there's this concept reversing the order of the moves, which means that if you think that you should do this and that and that, then you do that and that and this, reversing the order of things, is something that I learned from playing chess that helps me a lot in making any kind of decisions. So I think that chess became for me a real intellectual supercharge. Also, I discovered, as many people do, that I was really good at chess and that I really liked chess And I had never learned chess or been exposed to it until Josh. I mean, I had Josh when I was 32. So he was six or seven when he discovered chess. And I start, so I effectively started playing chess when I was 40. Melinda, before I get to my last couple of questions, uh, any, any questions on your plate? You know, I think, um, Bonnie's been very eloquent and, and answered, answered, answered everything very thoroughly. So I'll revisit uh, the one question we tabled, Bonnie. Any, any particular favorite memories from Josh's chess life? Well, 
not really a favorite memory, but a memory which stands out. Of course, there were so many high points in Joshua's chess life. I mean, one of the high points of Joshua's chess life was just when we started playing in Washington Square Park. And he was playing against these pretty rough characters, as Larry Breakstone portrayed in the movie. Um, he was playing so well and really winning games against people in surprising ways. And it was so exciting. It was like very exhilarating. It was an intense, intense experience. And before we, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and the other one, the other reverse kind of experience was that when he first started to play, we, he would always want me to play with him. So I'd be cooking dinner and talking on the phone and he wants me to play chess with him. So I would just make random moves. You know, I would just, I had no clue about chess. I was just learning. I mean, I was just being introduced to chess. So, and he would be so mad at me because I was so easy to beat. And I, I just remember that I've seen many students have the experience of winning against their parents in chess games and how they feel about that. I've also seen students who really don't want to play against their parents because um, this happened with Josh after he easily beat Fred and me both in chess games. He really didn't want to play with us anymore. It, it was not, if you have to hold your parents' hand to cross the street. You really don't want to know that they're such bad decision makers that you can easily beat them on the chessboard. <laughs> like if you're sitting in the back seat and your parent is driving and you know that they're a lousy chess player, it does not inspire your confidence. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that with many students. No, that's that's an interesting point. And you know, certainly many little boys have hero worship of their fathers. And uh, I, I could see where that could potentially be damaging in, in this situation. I don't know why you just say little boys. Um, because we're talking about Josh. That, that, that's the only reason. Okay. Well, many little girls too. I mean, as a little girl, I have to say, if I had been exposed to chess, I would have loved it and I would have learned it. But I grew up in a world... I was born in 1944. I grew up in a world where women were not encouraged to do any of those things. Have you, uh, you've, you, I imagine in your chess classes, you've, you've noticed uh, a certain, a strong increase in female participation. Well, in my chess classes, what I discovered is that girls learn differently than boys and they perform differently than boys. Um, for example, a simple exercise of, of doing teaching a beginner checkmate problem like a, a queen and bishop checkmate on where the king is on um, the right side of the board. And then I would put the king on the left side of the board and I would set up the position for the same exact checkmate. Now, girls would be more likely to want to repeat the move that was right before. 
and boys would be more likely to reverse the pattern and make the correct move. And this was something that I discovered. Now, if I pointed out to a girl that this was a pattern and that it could be reversed, it would that would information would immediately be applied and that would be overcome. But there are certain there seem to be certain um, basic differences in learning patterns between boys and girls. But again, girls are not encouraged to be strong in these areas. And still in schools, it's very hard to overcome these attitudes. And I see it everywhere I go. So I feel quite strongly that women need to be um, encouraged to learn and to show strength earlier at a very young age. And that our, our culture is so seeped in having girls wear pink and boys wear blue. And that applies through all phases of our culture. I couldn't agree with you more there, Bonnie. Right. So I know I would have been a different person if I had been not been told to be quiet. And I mean, I was an invisible girl in school. I was one of those little girls that the teacher doesn't learn the name of because I never picked up or misbehaved or anything. I was just trying not to be, I was just trying to survive. And being a good girl, right? I was a good girl. And I remember when I was in first grade, my brother came to pick me up and he asked for Bonnie. Well, my name is Margaret Louise. So the teacher had been calling Margaret Louise on the roll and marking me absent because I didn't answer because I was called Bonnie. So she told my brother that there was no Bonnie in her class. And it was like a month into school. So she had not discovered me at all. I, I call myself the invisible girl. So as a teacher, I always made a big effort to discover the invisible girls. And there are invisible girls in all the classes. Bonnie Waitskin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this July edition of One Move at a Time. Really appreciate it. This was this was fascinating. I learned a um, a lot about the Waitskin family that I had not known before. So, you know that was that was really interesting about your your, your wife's insights into how it affected the Waitskin family. But I, I want to come back now to you, Fred, and talk about two things that you mentioned before we we broke. Um, Mortal Games: The Turbulent Genius of Gary Kasparov is is the book you mentioned, and and you you talked about what a experience it was working with Kasparov. Uh, you were embedded with the Kasparov camp during his World Championship match preparations against Nigel Short. I've got a few questions about this. One did it did that experience change your perspective on your experiences with Josh as you saw chess life on an even higher plane? It's, it's an interesting question. Uh, I was with Gary work with his camp prior to the last Karpov match. Not Nigel, 
Sure. Oh, okay. My apologies. Are you, are you with me? That's, yes. okay. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. I, 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 you know, I, I, I was with Gary for probably two and a half years, but it was building towards the last Carpoff match. Um, but the question that you're asking is how did it affect the relationship with Josh? It was very interesting. Um, you know, Gary is very um, a, a powerhouse personality, and he's, 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 uh, he can be very difficult to get along with. Um, it's, he's a kind of my way or the highway kind of person. He doesn't like to be crossed. But he seemed to understand going in. Um, I'm sure he was attracted to the idea of my, my writing the biography. He asked me about it. Why do you want to write this book about me? I'm sure he was attracted to the idea because of searching for Bobby Fischer because it, it had been such a hit. Uh, and he, from reading that book, he certainly felt that my relationship with Josh was, um, I, wanna, I don't want to say unusually powerful, but, but very powerful. I mean, most, most parents' relationships with a child is powerful. So he was very, how should I put it? He was very tender about, about it. And I, 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 I developed a regard for him along those lines. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would watch him train and Josh would come along and Josh would become, become part of that scene. Josh was a strong player then. He was already an international master. So he'd sit with Gary. They'd play blitz together. He'd analyze with Josh. I remember we went to Linares together, three of us, two times, which is one of the strongest tournaments in the world. You know, 12 really powerful grandmasters. I think it was 12. Um, all, all the top grandmasters and Gary and me and Josh. And, and at the end of the games, Gary and Josh would go up to, to, uh, to Gary's room, not every game, but many games, and they analyzed the games together. And he was, he was, he was, um, he was incredibly differential to a young man who was not his equal as a chess player. Josh was very strong, but not equal of Kasparov. But he always wanted to know Josh's ideas and what Josh learned the position. So I think that that opened the door between the two of us emotionally, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it, it, it does. And that also feeds into my next question, which is, you know, given your relationship with Kasparov, did, did it surprise you at all when he ended up putting his life and liberty on the line as a Putin critic? No, it didn't surprise me because Gary, as I knew him from the beginning, I mean, you have to realize that, that, that from the, the first day that I met Kasparov, he was, he was um, arguing against um, communist rule, rule in Russia, the Soviet Union. Even all the time he was training for that match, half of him was into the politics of the day. And, and we often talked about it um, from a psychological point of view. He always needed to have a larger element, a larger counterpoint in his life to play against the chess game that he was going to play. Almost as if, almost as if he saw the chess game as trivial. Not trivial, but secondary to other things in life. And he needed, he needed, that, he needed the grandiosity of, of a large stage, larger than the stage, a world chess champion, in order to do his best. So when he, when he was no longer the chess champion, and I saw him a couple of times yet, he seemed to be floundering around a little bit, you know, to be lo looking for his voice. You know, it wasn't enough to be a former chess champion. What am I going to do? And so, like, um, becoming the enemy of Gorbachev was consistent with his politics, 
but also consistent with his personality. Enemy of Gorbachev, but also then later on in a much more harrowing way, an enemy of Putin. Putin, I'm sorry. He was, he was an enemy of Gorbachev, surprisingly so, when I was there with him. Because I, I, I thought that, that, that Gorbachev was like liberal in comparison to what had come before. But yes, Putin. I, I meant Putin now. And so before I get into some additional questions, you know, Melinda, as, as you hear um, some of how Fred has talked about Josh's chess life, you know, you, you are a chess parent yourself of a very accomplished uh, young player. Why, why don't you talk about Nikki and, and talk about your own feelings, uh, you know, being a chess parent and what, kind of what it all meant to you as, as Nikki is now as a, a young adult. Okay. That's a tall order there. Um, I relate to a lot of what Fred said about being the parent who doesn't play chess and just sort of trying to figure out what it all means. And even when I wrote about it and blogged about it, it was sort of from that perspective as well. You know, I learned early on to count pieces and get nervous if you had fewer pieces, but I didn't really know what any of it meant. So in that, that regard, I totally relate to what Fred was saying about that. And for me, what it's all meant, well, um, it's, it's led to a whole career for me. I, it went from being a chess parent to being a blogger for U.S. Chess to coming on as your assistant editor. And now I'm in this position. Um, for Nikki, it meant a scholarship to Lindenwood University. And he's now teaching chess with, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but Sunil Wurimakri's organization down here in Sunrise, Florida. Um, the National Scholastic Foundation for Chess, I think it's something like that. I'm sure I, I put it together incorrectly. So... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It feels like a bit of a full circle for me as well. Uh, does does Nikki get bemused at all by the fact that you, a non chess player, is is doing the job you're doing? He does, you know, and he 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 definitely uh, has tried to bring me along, but I don't have that kind of analytical mind. I know how the pieces move. I know how to read notation, but in terms of the analysis, um, it's I I seem to be a better writer than a chess player. Let's put it that way. Um, so that's, that's where I stand with that. Uh, so, but it's been, chess has been good to us. Uh, I can't imagine my life without it at this point. And, um, I'm, I'm still trying to learn. I'll just never, I'll just never be his caliber. Right. Right. Now, Fred, you had written the grungy world of big time chess and you had some worries at the time that you were pushing Josh in the wrong direction, that the boy might follow the same sad path that some brilliant chess players sucked into poverty and despair by their obsession with the game, which is a, uh, a line I read uh, in an article that I found on, the web, on, a, on, on a website. Does it surprise you at all? Uh, does it, are, you, are you really pleased that Josh has become such a well-rounded adult, even if chess is in no longer in his life? I'm certainly pleased. I mean, but I, but I, I would probably say that um, it would be disingenuous of me to say that I, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I was surprised. As I, as I said earlier, it was hard for me to pull myself out of chess. And Josh was the player. And he was really good. But he seemed to sense that, um, that maybe in a psychological and an emotional sense, he'd already done it. You know, he, you know, he wasn't a world champion. But he, he'd won so many championships, and he'd felt all of that. And he was still just 20 years old. And so it was, a time, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for him to move on and try out other things. 
So he was ready to go. He did, and I never felt the remorse from him that I felt in myself. And going back to that article, The Grungy World of Big Time Chess, which it absolutely was 30 years ago, since you're no longer in the chess world, are you, are you aware of how the script has been completely flipped? No. I can't really say that I am. Yeah. So the you know now the St. Louis Chess Club you know has kind of become the the center of of certainly chess in the United States, if not world chess, and things are done at such a high level now. When I started myself, one of the last U.S. Opens that I had or U.S. Championships I attended uh, before St. Louis took it over was just you know in a in a grungy little hotel ballroom. And you know now it's uh, you know they've they've got great facilities, top world class, literally world class facilities, and, and such. So it's it's a very different chess world now than it was when you started writing about it. Makes me happy. That's great. I, I do hear something about that from Maurice. Maurice. Maurice Ashley and Josh remain close friends, and I've always been close to Maurice. So I I see him a few times a year when we talk. He fills he fills me in on what's happening in the chess world. Maurice and Bruce Pendolfini, they're my buddy. Yeah, yeah. Mar- Maurice has become you know one of those uh, great color commentators uh, for St. Louis events. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun to listen to him on internet broadcasts. So, Fred, tell tell our listeners what life is like for you and Bonnie now. Um, you know, it, certainly if anybody reads your 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 novels or your your books about fishing, they they'll have a good sense of that. But let's hear it in your own words. Well, first of all, a word about Bonnie. I mean, it's great that you that she's included in this because she really has been in our family to keep her the flame. You know, she she um, she was tremendously success, successful as a chess teacher. I know from your introduction, it's already in there. But her teams won national championship after national championship, and she loved it. And she really embodied that for you know she 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 caught the fire from her son. And she did that for years, and she did it brilliantly. She's a wonderful teacher, so that that's a, a big element. Um, and from and we've been partners in many ways. I mean, you know, I I've I've written. Um, I guess it's, I guess this is the fifth book I'm working on now outside of the outside of chess, and um, she's been my editor for every one. She's a fantastic editor. Um, uh, you know, she, she, um, I've had a lot of editors in a lot of big publishing companies, but she has a great sense for my prose. She, she edits my work without, you know, she corrects my mistakes without ruining my prose style. And so we've been a partner in that sense for, for years. And, um, Melinda also reads my books. You know, she's, she's, uh, she's terrific. She reads my books and tells me what, 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 she, what you know, what she thinks, and she doesn't think this woman quite works properly. I go back and work on it. She's a great reader. Great reader. It's um, always fun to get those drafts. It's 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 a treat for me. So, and then she reads it again and says, "You really improved this, Fred," <laughs> which I love. Which I, she's a great reader. Well, since you're mentioning that you you're working on a new book, are you, is it anything you're you're ready to announce here? I mean, when I say I'm working on a new book, I'm right at the beginning of it. I wrote, but I'll tell you a little bit about it. I mean, I I, I um. I wrote a, t- a piece for the Times Magazine. Oh, God, I'm so terrible with years, I guess, because I'm trying to ward them off. But let's, let's just say it was around searching for Bobby Fisher time. <laughs> and, and it dealt with um, my best friend in high school, um, who was the smartest kid in my, my school, and, one of the, and maybe the smartest guy that I've ever known. Brilliant guy. And he came from a very peculiar family, dysfunctional family, but very wealthy family, and a very... Um, 
there's too much to describe here, but they, it was a very odd family in the sense that the father was a bigamist and, 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 a, and a multimillionaire, and he had a second wife, the first wife didn't know about. And my friend grew up under unusual circumstances, and he went to, he went to college with a, a negative impression of himself, didn't think he was really smart, but he was a genius. And he, and he, and he befriended some of the, the great philosophers in the world, including Saul Kripke, who's a lot of people think is the, is, is the, is the closest thing to Bertrand Russell that, that, that lives. And so he, Ralph was brilliant, but everything started to go wrong in his life at one point. And, and um, he invented many things. He wrote articles on the, the best philosophers in the world. Everything started to go wrong in his life. And, and um, through a ser- series of circumstances, um, he became a homeless person. And, and he was homeless on the streets of Florida for 30 years. Still brilliant. Uh, and we stayed in touch. And, um, and working on his ideas and helping people, other people that were homeless and suffering and making the best of it, a di- difficult situation. And, and I, I had a sense when I wrote this piece for the Times Magazine, that there was a book in it. But one of the things about me is that if I've written something, I don't want to write it again. And it took me a lot of years to figure out how I could write this in a way that it would go in its own direction. Um, One of the things that I do as a novelist is that I kind of combine fiction with nonfiction, or nonfiction with fiction. I think a lot of novelists do this, but they don't own up to it. You know, like if you... If you think of someone like Ernest Hemingway, for example, when he wrote The Sun Also Rises, he wrote about those, those characters were all friends of his, real characters. And in his first and second draft, drafts, he used their real names. But then as he came close to publishing it, he took the names out. And you have the impression that it's a work of fiction. Well, it is a work of fiction because the real characters became fictive characters. But what I do, which is a little different in my books, is I take real characters and I juxtapose them to characters that are more totally fictitious. So in this new novel, you'll have this character of Ralph, although he probably won't be called Ralph when I write the book. And, and there'll be other characters that I introduce that I don't really know personally, and they'll interact. And it creates an interesting dynamic. It's sort of one of, the, one of the hallmarks that I use in my books. So that's the book that I'm writing right now. And the other thing that I, that, did I mention this earlier, um, my second to last book, um, which was called Deep Water Blues, which uh, Melinda certainly read more than once and commented on, um, is, is being turned into a, well, I can't say being turned into a movie, but the script has been written. So I'm working on that too. I'm advising the screenwriter. Those are the two projects that are alive for me at the moment. Oh, very, very cool. Um, Melinda, do you have any other questions before we start closing this out? Um, well, I might want to circle back just a little bit since this is what's all, what, what does it all mean? And just kind of ask what you may have learned about yourself going through as a, as a parent and as a person going through the chess journey with Josh. And then I also want to ask what's happening with your grandchildren. Are they learning chess? Do they seem to be going on this path also, or are you just taking it as it comes? Well, taking the second question first, um, both of my grand- grandkids, Jack, who's 10, almost 11, and Charlie, who's 6, have been interested in chess, and they play chess, and they enjoy it. But neither of them seem, seems to be on fire with chess. And I think everyone in the family is delighted about that, because 
um, it would have created a challenge and a difficulty if one of them was really playing competitively because it would just would have been a hard act to follow. So chess is lovely in their lives, and Bonnie is a great teacher. She's taught them both how to play. And Josh admires their chess from afar. Um, but that's, I think, as far as it will go with, with, with them. And then the first question, ask it again, Melinda. I, I, I was just curious about how the whole journey with Josh as a chess parent changed you or influenced you, or what did it all mean to you now that you're, you're past it? sure I could answer this question if we talked about it for a half hour. Um, it's a hard one to give an easy answer to. I mean, I, it, it, it taught me all, so much. I mean, it taught me, you know, um, I, when I wrote the book and I was asked about what it was, was it a book about chess? I said it was more, more a book about a parent's introspection about what his child was doing rather than a work about chess. And so I, work, I, I wrote a lot about my mistakes, things that I did that I felt badly about, things that I felt good about. You know, I felt like um, I surely felt badly. I mean, I, I wrote quite candidly in the book that, that when Josh lost games, which wasn't so often, but sometimes, you know, I would get so down about it, inappropriately down about it. And that put a certain pressure on him so that, so that he, he was worrying at certain points that he was playing for his father's um, welfare rather than mm -hmm. the joy of the game. On the other hand, I think if you were talking to Josh now, he would tell you that we were a great team, that, 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 that my impulse um, for him to play well was when he was down and was so interested in playing, the fact that I wanted him to play and play well, was, was he derived inspiration from, from that. I mean, in, a in the Times Magazine, they, they, they called one of, one of the stories on, on this John McEnroe's father and me, um, because I felt like I was a little bit like John McEnroe's father, you know, pushing my kid to do as well as he could do. I mean, if I had it to do all over again, you know, would I not push him so hard? Probably because I've been shied so much over the years and would it would have cost him something. It probably would have cost him something and he would have gained something at the same time. That's just one answer. I mean, I could I could attack this question from a lot of different angles. Yes, and and I I, I mean I feel the same way. It's uh, I think about some of the things, you know, things I could have done better as a chess parent, and I think of some of the things that I think I made made good decisions on. So it goes in all different directions. I understand. You know, I I think that um, one of the things that I I feel good about at the end of this at the end of this incredible um, odyssey is that we've come out best friends, Josh and I. So feel good about that. That's, I think that's a perfect place to close it. Fred Waitskin, and again to Bonnie Waitskin, thank you so much for joining us on this One Move at a Time podcast. And Melinda, thank you for your participation as well. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you. This was a great talk. I enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at US Chess are cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, 
Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month. And on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.